Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems adopt technologies. I am your host, Tiasha Zaitz, and this is the second episode of a four-part series about patients, their experiences with healthcare and digital health. In the first episode, you were able to listen to Roy Sternin from Israel, who visited 33 doctors and got his diagnosis hardly five years after the beginning of his problems, when he himself suspected that his diagnosis could be a rare condition called the POTS syndrome. After getting better, he founded several companies to improve healthcare. This is his comment regarding differences patients can find themselves in when treated in different healthcare systems. I recognize a pattern universally when patients with invisible illnesses like mine, like patients who you cannot see that they're very sick sometimes until it's too late, or patients with undiagnosed conditions are being treated poorly across the, the world. And it's kind of a universal problem. Today, you will be listening to Marina Barukovic, who currently lives in Germany, but was diagnosed with breast cancer at 37 years old while living in the Netherlands. Three years after her diagnosis, she lost her father to pancreatic cancer in the US. Marina is the founder of Your Coach, a startup giving coaches client management and accountability tools to help heal their clients holistically with the vision of having health coaches accessible to everyone. Before we begin, let me just announce the two additional episodes in this series. I spoke to two patient advocates, Bettina Rill from Sweden, who lost her husband to melanoma, founded Melanoma Patient Network Europe, chairs the ESMO Patient Advocates Working Group, and is member of the Mission Board for Cancer at the European Commission. For me, patient advocacy is a quite, I mean, this is something that how we use patient advocacy in, in, in Europe. A patient advocate in the US would be something different, where they are often like something like a personal guide for a patient navigating a patient through a healthcare system. And we would probably rather call such a person a navigator. But a patient advocate in European terms, um, I think it is quite important to realize that with any disease, there are so many issues and they can range from simple emotional support, just being there for someone else who needs just someone who understands to very, very different things. You could be involved in research or policy. And in order to make a difference for patients, we have to spend the entire spectrum. So I do believe what falls then under patient advocacy can look very, very different and can contain very different things. But for me, it's this focus. It's not just about yourself anymore. It is about people in your situation that makes the difference between a simple patient and someone who should be considered a patient advocate. The last speaker of the series will be Grace Cordovano from the U.S., who was first a caregiver to her mother, who got diagnosed with breast cancer at 48. And a few years later, Grace was diagnosed with lymphoma, which four months later turned out to be a wrong diagnosis. Today, Grace is a fierce patient advocate in the U.S. Most people, I mean, who actually looks forward to going to their doctor appointment? 
no one. Uh, no one is like, oh, this is great. I'm going to go to the doctor's office. I can't wait to sit there for hours and spend three minutes with my doctor and get a cancer diagnosis. No one is excited for that. But the best thing we can do is prepare. And it's simple things. Dedicating a notebook and a folder. Bringing someone with you. Discussing, you know, why am I here? What are my most uh, critical symptoms? What is keeping me up at night? Those three questions alone focus you as to what you're hoping to accomplish in that appointment. You can find summaries of the episodes on our website www.facesofdigitalhealth.com The direct link to the recaps of this series is in the show notes. And if you haven't yet, do subscribe to the show wherever you listen to your podcasts so we will be notified about the new episodes in this series automatically. And now, to Marina Barukovic and your coach. Marina, hi. Let's go back to how the whole story about your coach began. Uh, when you went for a checkup that later revealed that you had cancer in 2014, you felt healthy and even after a mammogram and ultrasound, according to your memory, the doctors did not seem overly concerned. And then the news uh, about the results was anything but not concern not concerning so how did that influence you you know the fact that the responses from doctors were reassuring and then um you actually received um a serious diagnosis of breast cancer so it's something that i found myself um i was too young to go for mammogram at the time so i was 37 years old when i was diagnosed and i just woke up in the middle of the night and i started feeling my breast and i found i found the lump And then the next morning when I was in the shower, I kind of remembered about it and I felt it again. And I was the one who went to the doctor and approached them about it. So the doctor wasn't concerned, like you mentioned, and neither was the radiologist. Um, but in the back of my mind, I felt that there was something wrong. So when the news came from my doctor a, a week later that it was cancer, I wasn't really surprised. Uh, you know, sometimes women's intuition and we just know what we know, um, sometimes without a reason, but it's just something that I felt. So it wasn't really surprising news. But how, how did that uh, week when you were waiting for the results, how did that look like for you from the emotional perspective? It was horrible. It was absolutely horrible. So it was actually, it was... Uh, When I got the news, it was July 15th. And the week before that, we were traveling, we were doing a holiday with the kids and with friends who were visiting from US and we were all going to Italy. So we were in Italy and we're in this gorgeous house in, you know, with, with our friends. And I wasn't enjoying myself because I knew just in the back of my mind, I was going through old emotions, but in the back of my mind, I knew something was wrong. So it's, it's, it's a horrible feeling. It's whatever you imagine it to be, that's what it was. So how did you react when you actually received the call from the doctor? What went through your mind like that moment and the week that followed? Uh, I think the unknown is the worst part. So when she did say it's carcinoma and she didn't know anything else and we just needed further tests, I think that week was probably the most horrible week out of the whole ordeal because it was, it was just so many questions. It was so much unknown. 
and the fact that nothing was being done. And, you know, logically, you know that the cancer is not growing that fast, but in the back of your mind, it's like, okay, this is, it's growing and it's killing me and it's going to kill me before I even get to see the doctor. Um, I couldn't imagine a future, you know, like when I was thinking of the future and I was thinking of my husband and my kids, I couldn't see it. I, I couldn't see any of it. How did the care look like after that? Uh, you were diagnosed in the Netherlands. Can you describe um, the whole procedure and uh, perhaps your perception of the healthcare system and the care that you received? I just wanted to say, first and foremost, that I'm forever grateful for the doctors in Amsterdam who saved my life. I, I truly give it to them. It, it's, it's them. They're, they're the ones who saved me. They're the ones who cured me. Um, I went right away. We went to Anthony van Lowenhoek. It was uh, this premier cancer center that the, uh, the doctor recommended. And within one day, that first day that we got there, I had every test imaginable done to me. Um, they did the blood work. They did um, the, the radiologist examined me. I mean, I met with the surgeon. I met with doctors. And then they met that same day, and they devised a care plan for me. And later on that day, I met with the surgeon, and he is the one that told me what was going to happen. And it was going to be chemotherapy, and then it was going to be surgery, um, and then it was going to be radiation, and then after that, reconstructive surgeries, which we didn't even talk about at the moment. Um, I thought the care was wonderful because the surgeon, when he looked at me and, you know, I, I, my, my cancer was in one breast, it was in my left breast. And I said, let's just take them both off. And he said, no, you're young, you're 37 years old. We need to think about your quality of life. He said, medically, I don't think it's necessary. So he wasn't taking drastic measures just to take drastic measures. He was actually looking at me at a person. And then as far as chemotherapy, I mean, it, uh, after I was on one for about four weeks, they needed to do a test at the hospital to see if it was working. And it needed to be an MRI, which wasn't covered by insurance. And the hospital, they had a grant that covered it because they felt that it was important. So this whole treatment, everything that I went through and all my surgeries were done in the Netherlands, all the treatment was done. I had a nurse that was coming to the house to administer medication. And we didn't pay one penny for any of it besides what our insurance costs were. I want to stop there for, for a second. Um, so Faces of Digital Health focuses on different healthcare systems. So I all, all, always like to ask uh, my speakers about their experiences with different healthcare systems. Uh, you were born in Belarus um, and then you lived in the U.S. actually um, up until eight years ago. So uh, do, can you make a reflection or think how the care and with the same diagnosis would look like for you in the U.S. or in Belarus? So I can't really reflect much in Belarus. I was 12 years old when we left. I grew up in America. I consider myself American. Um, so I can't really reflect on that. Um, what I will tell you, actually, so my dad was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. Um, it was two and a half years ago. And I saw what he was going through in U.S., And granted, my parents, American citizens, have great insurance. They were both working. What took my doctors a day to do all my tests, it took my dad a month to get everything done, which was 
he said he had stage four pancreatic cancer. I thought it was absolutely unacceptable how slow everything was moving and how slow everything was going. And he was treated at one of the best cancer hospitals um, in New York. And even at that, even at this premier cancer hospital, that's how slow it was going. So I think my experience with this was much better than our experience was with my dad when he was going through it. Why did things move slowly according to your observation as a relative of a patient? I don't know. I mean, I think it's because there's so much more bureaucracy. I mean, I can only reflect on my care in the Netherlands and Amsterdam in particular. I can't reflect on any, in, in any other country in Europe. And I just felt that there the focus was on getting me better regardless of what the the costs were or what hoops we had to jump through. It was care first, pay later. And I feel in U.S., there's just so much bureaucracy and everything just needs to be approved before you get to things. And I mean, even after a test was taken, it was taken us a week to get those results. I don't know why it should take this long. I don't know why it did take this long. I never got the answers when we asked them. Uh, the answer was, it is what it is. That's the way it works. I would assume that part of it is probably the fact that liability issues and fear from lawsuits can be higher in the U.S. And this is also why the system is so expensive. I don't know what's your opinion, perhaps, about that, given that you're also an entrepreneur, you know, so you're digging into the U.S. healthcare system also from, from that perspective. Yeah, I mean, like a lot of these alternative medicines are much easier reimbursed in the Netherlands um, as opposed to in U.S. You know, it's um, there's a lot of focus on money and who's paying for what, where, like I said, I felt that here it was care first. So it's uh, it's hard to navigate through as an entrepreneur, as a business owner. It's, it's really hard to navigate through. How much were you included in the care plan, you know, as a patient? How did you feel that the care was delivered in the uh, human sense? Doctors treat a lot of patients, so a patient can quickly feel like just a number or objectified by, by his disease. Um, as far as I, I can't say, I really felt like a number. So I felt that my surgeon, he, he had a very human approach to what it was. Um, after my mastectomy, I remember he walked into the room and he needed me to look. He needed me to look at the scar. Sorry, I, I get emotional sometimes. Though. Um, he needed me to look at the scar because if something was to change, I was the only one that knew my body and knew my scars, right? We just needed to make sure that it was healing properly. And I said, I can't look at it. He looked at me. He hugged me, this like well-renowned surgeon. And he said, I know it hurts your heart. I know it hurts your soul, but it's something that you need to do. And I thought that was so human and so beautiful coming from him that I didn't feel that I was being treated like a number. Uh, the radiologist that was treating me, when I was asking her what was going on, she couldn't look me in the eyes. And I thought it's because she was so cold and I thought that she didn't have a personality where I later realized that she had so much vested into my well-being that she couldn't look me in the eye without crying. So I not feel like a number. The only time I didn't feel like my needs were taken into consideration is when 
they felt when I felt I needed something more, right? So besides the medical, I felt that I needed the emotional, the mental, I, I needed, I, I felt that I needed to be taken care of. And I was sent for psychotherapy, which was great. So I walk into the office and I say to the doctor, the only thing I don't want to talk about is I don't want to talk about cancer or dying. And the first thing I was asked is, are you afraid of dying from cancer? So I just felt that was not personalized at all. It wasn't what I needed. I mean, I walked right out of that office. It wasn't for me. So I felt that the medical stuff was taken care of very well. And I do feel that I was treated like a person more than my disease. But when it came to treating the rest of me after the medical was done, I felt that I was lost there. What happened then? How did you approach the problem? I decided to take matters into my own hands. And what is now I know called body hacking, I guess I did that without knowing what it was. So um, I wanted to eat better. And then, I mean, I always ate really well. I always put a lot of focus on my nutrition. And then when I was sick, I was asking doctors what I should, should be doing. And the answer was whatever feels good to you. So they told me it, it didn't matter what I was eating, which in my heart, I knew it wasn't true. So I kind of just devised my own plan and just, it was a lot of juicing and it was a lot of smoothies and just a lot of clean stuff to get all the garbage that was put with chemotherapy out of my body. Um, and then when I wanted to exercise, they set me up with a trainer that said my heartbeat couldn't go above like 80 beats a minute, a minute which is ridiculous. So I found a boxing coach who knew what I needed and how I needed to be helped. And we worked together and I was boxing all through my treatments. Um, so I took matters into my own hands. And then with my mental well-being, I was talking to friends and I was going for walks. And that's what that's what I needed to clear my head. So I kind of created the squad of people around me that helped me take control of my own life and my own body. Do you still do any boxing today? I do. It's my favorite sport. It's uh, a good way to get aggressions out. <laughs> Why boxing? So I feel like I need to concentrate a lot. And in, in what I'm doing, there's a lot of concentration on form. Um, and I can't think about anything else. So that it really clears my head because all my focus is on boxing. When you decided to do this sport as part of your therapy, was that already because uh, you knew that this would be the effect, that it would help you uh, take your mind off your therapies and uh, the worries? Or what was the thinking behind that? You know, I just wanted to be in control and I just wanted to fight. I was in fighting mode. Um, <laughs> and I think I've been in fighting mode ever since. And that's what felt right for me. So I was in fighting mode emotionally and mentally. And then with boxing, I was in fighting mode physically. So I was just taking out all my aggressions on this bag and my trainer with his gloves. And it was not a pretty sight. <laughs> How long did it take you to start thinking that this squad that you designed around yourself, that this could be something that could help also other patients. And uh, you began developing your coach, which is exactly the startup that's trying to achieve that. Give patients all the support that they need from different specialists that they feel they need. So it actually came very, very organically. Um, so after a um, couple of years, after my treatments were done, I decided to become a health coach. 
And when I went into, and when I went to health coaching school um, afterwards, I just wanted like an easier solution because there wasn't really anything out there for me to manage my clients. And that's when I reached out to my partner, Dan, who's also a friend. And we started building the solution for me. And it was supposed to be just something simple, just a toy for me to use with my clients. And then when we started building it, we realized what it is that we were building and we realized how big it could be and how many people we can actually help. And that's the idea of your coach. That's when it was born. It was like one of those aha moments. We just looked at each other and we said, this is it. (laughs) This is what we're going to build. So it was actually the fact that you were a health coach yourself and you saw what um, bureaucratic uh, problems you have as your coach that you actually uh, decided to design the, the platform. Exactly. I just feel that it takes more than one person to heal you. Uh, we, we ebb and flow as people. And at different points in our lives, we may need different things. So, you know, I needed boxing at first, and maybe I needed meditation later. And maybe I needed somebody to help me with my nutrition at some point or sleep management. And all that just ebbs and flows. And there's no reason to assume that one person can be there for you to help with that all. It takes a squad. It takes a village. And that's what we're building. So what kind of profiles do you currently have among your coaches? It's very niche. So we have um, 120 coaches on a platform. It's actually a little more than that right now. Um, and they all have very niche specialties. I mean, there's somebody who specializes in just STEM professionals. And then there's somebody who specializes in anxiety for teenagers Um, There's a lot of nutrition coaches. There's somebody who specializes in well-being for women executives. So there's a lot of different specialties, and that's what we celebrate because we don't train them. We don't believe in the cookie-cutter approach. It's about the individual coaches contributing what they do best. How do you certify that the coaches that you take on the platform are appropriate for the potential clients that may come in contact with you to avoid uh, potential liability issues? Because cancer is a very specific disease in the sense that I'm speaking from the journalistic experiences that I had with doctors or nutritionists that were working in the hospitals and they were very, very upset because some patients would, for example, decide to uh, take alternative approaches that were not uh, appropriate for them and they only came back to the hospital when it was already too late, you know, so... I'm assuming that uh, you thought about all these potential issues. This answer is actually twofold. So number one, uh, we can talk about patients, but then we can also talk about clients. So our platform is not just designed for chronically ill uh, patients. It's not just for cancer patients, not just for uh, heart disease or diabetes patients. It's a lot for people who just want to feel better and be better versions of themselves, right? Um, so that's number one. Um, number two, we, we, we're not consumer facing right now. This is a platform for coaches. So the idea is for the coaches to bring their clients onto the platform and to manage them through our platform. And then if they need to, at the help of another coach, they can always connect with them and to bring them into their squad as well. Having said that, we do have, um, in place a process that we're going to be vetting the coaches to make sure that everybody, because ultimately we want to become the ultimate authority in health coaching. 
So we are going to be vetting coaches that are on the platform to make sure that they're certified, that they have outcomes, uh, the right outcomes. And we're also going to be tracking those outcomes. How many coaches do you have at the moment? As of now, there's 120 coaches registered on the platform. And uh, there's 39 programs running uh, from these coaches with an average about 1 to 26 people per program. You have a very noble goal, and that is to make a squad of experts affordable and available to anyone that needs them. Um, and I'm wondering what's your thinking regarding the business model and how to make that vision a reality, given that, let's say, uh, psychotherapies can get quite expensive per session already. And it doesn't matter in which country you are in the U.S., it's, it can be between 50 and $350. And these sessions are supposed to last for quite a long time. Yeah, so the coaches that are on the platform, they order, they, they offer individual as, as well as group sessions. And obviously, group sessions are a lot less expensive than individual approach. So uh, if somebody can't afford an individual coach, they can go into the group session as well. But um, there are over 100 clinical trials that just finished with positive results that investigated health coaching. And there are, four, there are 84 current trials that are going on right now. So our hope is that when with, with these trials completed, and now, by the way, there's three um, uh, CPT codes, category three CPT codes that are being approved by uh, AMA and VA that are going into effect this year. So they're being tested now also for health coaching reimbursements. So our hope with that and showing outcomes and the positive results from all of this, that we're going to be able to get health coaching reimbursed by insurers and employers. That's a very interesting point, actually, because um, uh, in the recent episode, I was talking to uh, a VP of business development of a startup that designed a robot for the elderly to uh, cope with loneliness. And they're originally from France, but they, they are already working with insurance companies and they, the insurance companies recognized value in their solution for the well-being and health and decreased healthcare costs. This kind of makes me think, on based on what you said, that perhaps uh, it is going to get a little bit easier to get into discussions with insurance companies to cover things that are not strictly medical. Absolutely. So we, we believe in the science-backed, behavior-driven approach. And by showing outcomes, by proving that this works, this is how we're hoping to get it reimbursed. Are you noticing any differences in the U.S. compared to Europe or specifically Germany? You're based in Berlin. Even in the U.S. it differs. I mean, it differs. Most, people, most coaches are in the East Coast and the West Coast, and there's more in the West Coast than East Coast. Um, in Europe, they, they've heard of it, but people are not really sure what it is. And the coaches that I have come across that are certified, they have been certified by U.S. schools and universities. So there's really nothing here. I mean, there's a couple of schools in UK. There's a school in Ireland that is up and coming. But the industry is definitely uh, much farther along in U.S. It's more well-known. But even in U.S., people know they want a health coach. They know it's something that they may need, but they're not really sure about what it is. And it's our goal to educate people about what a health coach is, about what a wonderful mentor it could be on their health and wellness journey.
Can you tell me a little bit more about the coaching industry? How big is the whole sector of health coaches or similar services? The current statistics say that there is about 109,000 health coaches that are in U.S., but this number is highly underestimated because this is only going after the health coaches who are reimbursed by employers or insurance, and these are mostly nutritional therapies. So we've done a lot of investigating and we've spoken to a lot of schools. And in our estimation, there's about 500,000 coaches and the industry is growing. I mean, we're really in amazing stages right now. Um, there is about 45,000 coaches that are graduating every year with various niche specialties. So this industry is up and coming. And the most exciting thing that I think is that we're still shaping it, that we're at the precipice of it, and we can still shape it into what it needs to be. I, I never want to say that a health coach can ever take a place of a doctor. Absolutely not. I believe that health coaches and doctors can work together to better patients and clients' lives. I think that the coaches are filling those gaps in care where the doctors just maybe don't have the time to do so. So by working together, they can definitely help. And there's been several trends that we've actually been noticing, one of which is nurses going into health coaching because they feel that they can just do so much more because they're so boggled down with a lot of administrative tasks. And with the help of health coaching, they can help where they're most needed and do what they're most good at. The thing that you said that uh, health coaches and doctors could work together, you know, that kind of reminds me of what we are being warned today regarding marriage. In the old days, friends took care of one part of your life, neighbors took care of another part of your life. And uh, today, there's so much pressure that our partner needs to be everything, which is also why some relationships are in trouble, you know. So as patients, if we don't expect everything from our doctors, then we can uh, improve the well-being of everyone in the story. I think that's a really great comparison. And it just goes back to what I said before. Not one person can be anything and everything to another person. So as a client, as a patient, as a person, I know what it is that I need. I should also know who I need on my team to help me get there. What are your future plans? Um, how do you imagine the positive future of health coaches being available for everyone? We are developing and we're making the platform better and better. And we are going to be tracking outcomes in order to match the right coaches with the right people, with the right clients, with the right patients. And that way you're going to be able to be matched with a person who is absolutely right for you. And by showing these positive outcomes, by showing what coaches can do, we're hoping to get it reimbursed. That's where it's going. That's, that, that's where it's heading. And that way it's going to be available to all. I mean, that's our mission at your coach that by the year 2030 for the projected 9 billion people in the world to have access to health coaches to heal mind, body, and soul, regardless of what their financial situation is. Healthcare systems differ around the globe. So um, are you already also looking, for example, in Asia or Africa or how solutions could be used there, given the specifics of the healthcare systems? Yeah, I mean, we've been approached by companies and actually governments. Um, this is something that we're working towards. Um, I, until we start showing outcomes, until we have more coaches on the platform, 
until we can start showing more traction. I don't want to promise anything to anyone, but we're definitely in talks and I see how this can definitely help people globally. I mean, already on the platform, we have um, a coach who most of our clients are Cuban and she's in US. So she's already helping them globally um, without physically being there. So I can see how that would work. But we need the coaches. We need them to get on the platform and to try it and to tell us what works and what doesn't so we can make it better in order to bring it to the masses, in order to bring it to different countries and continents and governments. You've been listening to Faces of Digital Health. If you like the show, do leave a rating or a review wherever you get your podcast. It does make a big difference in helping other listeners find the show as well. Speaking of visibility, Faces of Digital Health is now a member of the Health Podcast Network. So if you're looking for more healthcare-related podcasts, go to www.healthpodcastnetwork.com to find other shows you might be interested in as well. Stay tuned.